Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. If you were a small child who grew up near a coastline, or maybe especially if you didn't, nothing was more enchanting about summer than collecting seashells on the beach. People have been using conchs and scallops and whelks as musical instruments, jewelry, canvas, and even money, pretty much since we evolved enough to pick them up. But the future of seashells and the creatures who make them is uncertain. The smallest shells are dissolving in an acidifying ocean. And today, mollusks that have survived 500 million years of ice ages and heat waves are facing an enemy undeterred by their hardened exteriors. Humans and the climate change we've created. Science writer Cynthia Barnett's new book, The Sound of the Sea, is a plea to listen to what shells are telling us, both about the ocean and ourselves. Cynthia joins us from her home in Florida to introduce us to the sound of the sea. Thanks so much for talking to me. Thank you for having me on Smarty Pants. <laughs> Words I can't say without laughing, even though I know this is supposed to be serious. Super serious. <laughs> so serious that I have to confess that it took me a really long time to read your book because I kept Googling all of the scientific names <laughs> of like the sea creatures and the shells. And I was like, oh my God, these are so beautiful. Um, so obviously that's inspiration alone for writing a big book about seashells. But more specifically, what inspired inspired you to write about these fantastical creatures? I actually have a very specific story about this. I was casting about for my next book to be about the oceans because I have been a water reporter for most of my career. My first two books were about freshwater pressures in the United States. My third book was a biography of rain. It's called Rain and Natural and Cultural History. And I like the idea of sort of completing the water cycle by turning to the oceans, but I wasn't sure quite how I was going to do that. And I was at this wonderful seashell museum in Sanibel, Florida, the Bailey Matthews National Shell Museum. And while I was there, I heard a statistic that just floored me. They had surveyed visitors, many of whom were tourists visiting Florida and their children, to find out how much they already knew about shells. And some 90% of the respondents didn't know that a seashell is made by a living animal. Most people thought that they were some kind of rock or stone. I just couldn't stop thinking about that. And I also started thinking what a perfect metaphor that is for the ocean itself, right? Because we, we loved seashells for their beautiful exterior while ignoring this fascinating animal that builds the shells. And in that same way, we've really loved the oceans like a postcard or as the idyllic backdrop of life rather than the very source of life. The sea is just so huge and so beautiful that it's hard to understand the impact we're having beneath the waves on things like water quality and ocean chemistry. You know, they've been shielding us from an awful lot. We're enduring, especially people in the Western United States right now are enduring this incredible heat wave. So the oceans have been absorbing all of this heat, 90% of the heat, 
and 30% of the carbon, the extra carbon emissions we've put into the atmosphere since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, and they've really come close to taking all they can. So I just came to see seashells as these wonderful ambassadors for understanding the oceans. And that's that's the moment when I decided to do it. It was actually that very night that I learned that statistic. I started plotting this out. Well, you had a lot of ambassadors to choose from because <laughs> there are just so many darn mollusks and bivalves and seashells <laughs> in the world. I mean, how did you possibly begin this journey you know, introducing, okay, the ocean, and then all of these creatures to <laughs> an unsuspecting populace? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. And I don't think I knew what I was getting myself into. In fact, I thought this would be my easiest book, which was a crazy thing to think. It was definitely my most challenging book, because I hadn't written about wild animals before. You know, I was thinking of writing about an animal, but there are actually 50,000 known marine mollusks, and that's probably a third of those out there. So what I did in the end was I chose 12 really iconic seashells, like those seashells that have been most iconic to people over human history. And there are 13 chapters because I started with the first shells, marine microfossils that came before mollusks. But I really set out to listen to what seashells had to say about the environment. And, and pretty specifically, I was interested in how they were being impacted by climate change. But what kept happening again and again is that they told these really powerful human stories. And I think more than in any other book, in this book, I finally understood the extent to which people and our vulnerabilities need to be at the center of environmental stories, because that's what it's going to take to fix our environmental challenges. And I came to think of seashells as the world's great fact checkers, because in every way, like in human stories and in environmental stories, they would tell a more accurate story than the humans who wrote it down in the first place. So just one of so many examples would be the indigenous American story. There were so many facts that archaeologists now know from seashells that are really different than the way those stories were originally told about the native people who were here at the time of European colonialism. So they really, you know, were fact checkers all along the way, which was a cool thing about them. I definitely want to talk about the human story because I think that is the key to making people care. Yeah. <laughs> but, yes. you know, many people don't even know that seashells are alive or were at one point. So I feel like we should start with the basics. <laughs> okay. um, how old are the kinds of creatures that leave behind seashells? And are they all called mollusks? Or is an oyster different from like a sea snail? Does a sea snail even count? Yeah, that's a great question. So these animals are writ large the mollusks, the second largest group of animals behind the arthropods that include insects. They're on sea and on land. So the animals we know of that make seashells 
are the marine mollusks, and there are a couple of different kinds of them, but I am primarily writing about the gastropods, which is what you were describing as a sea snail. This is the animal that makes one winding shell. And then there are the bivalves. These are the animals that make a double shell, such as a clam or an oyster. And malacologists, who are the scientists who study mollusks, think that maybe only about a third of those that are out there have been named. A lot of them are buried under the sand, so that's that's part of the issue for finding them and identifying them. And you mentioned earlier the first proto-seashells. When did they come around? Well, the mollusks I just described begin to evolve 500 million years ago, so they're half a billion years old. It means that mollusks have lived through the five great extinctions, so they have some really important lessons for us now. But when I started this, as I mentioned, I hadn't written about these animals before, and I really just wondered, yeah, but where did shells come from? I kept going back and back and back and interviewing evolutionary biologists, and I felt like I still didn't have the whole story of how this all started. And so I ended up going back 800 million years to describe biomineralization. So this is the process by which marine creatures can take up minerals in the seawater around them to make hard shells. And when you look at those marine microfossils under a microscope, you can see these really cool little spikes and patterns. You can see the beauty there of the seashells that are to come. I can understand your desire to want to go back to like, but where did they come from? Because like, (laughs) even though my nails are kind of like shells, you know, it's not that far off. Right. But I guess the contrast between me and an oyster seems like so big. (laughs) So can you walk us through the process of what that looks like for a gastropod, say, um, or an oyster? Yeah. So the other really fascinating thing about these animals is that they have many different ways of coming into the world. So I'll just quickly say that if you looked at a baby oyster or clam in a microscope, it it might look like a little tiny grain of sand and they would reproduce by sending out the little tiny uh, seeds into the sea to meet up. And when you're talking about some gastropods. I'll give an example of one. I was just in Puerto Rico earlier this week with some conch scientists, a conch scientist named Dr. Megan Davis, who is also in the queen conch chapter. And she is beginning a queen conch aquaculture facility in Puerto Rico. And I was there and got to see the queen conch eggs being brought in. So the fishers bring in the eggs from the wild, and the queen conchs lay these beautiful strings of eggs. They're kind of these, you remember silly string, what that felt like? It's kind of stretchy and weird. It sprays out of a bottle. It looks a bit like that, and it's all folded up, and the queen conch actually lays on these egg masses, 
And then they go through a metamorphosis that is every bit as astonishing as that from caterpillar to butterfly. They hatch out of these little strings and then they become larvae and they grow out these little limbs and they float around for a while kind of looking for a perfect place to stop and they eventually stop on some seagrass and then their limbs begin to turn into their different body parts and they are surrounded by this beautiful gossamer bubble and that gossamer bubble becomes the shell and everything the mollusk does after that is taking in minerals to build that shell bigger and bigger around itself. So it starts buried in the sand uh, doing that work. And then when it's still very small, maybe only about an inch or so, will come up out of the sand and start, start moving around. But ultimately, this animal can build a five-pound shell. And it's so amazing to think of this little tiny thing uh, using minerals in, in the sea to build that shell. But there are almost as many different ways of coming into the world as there are mollusks themselves. That process just sounds so magical and kind of unbelievable. And I I understand why shells were so prized all across the world for so long. Can you talk about some of the earliest examples we have of shells being used in human society? I think it would be easier to say what societies didn't use shells. Actually, there might not be any, right? They were just totally ubiquitous, even inland. Just so amazing that so many cultures found shells important, whether as musical instruments or or whatever. But I'll, I'll go back I'll start 500,000 years ago. Some of the first art is etched on mussel shells found at the Solo River in Java, Indonesia, site of Java Man. These incredible geometric zigzags were engraved half a million years ago, and they really represent cognition among our predecessors, Homo erectus, and some of the world's earliest known art. I opened the book with... Neanderthals a hundred thousand years ago collecting seashells along a beach in what is now Spain. And archaeologists know that these shells were collected for some other reason than food. They know they were collected empty. 75,000 years ago in the Stone Age, seashells have been found as some of the earliest known keepsakes tucked into graves. There's a beautiful little uh, cone shell. You can still you can still see its rose-colored tint. It was interred for 75,000 years in the grave of a four to six month old infant in a rock shelter in South Africa. 4,000 years ago, you might remember the chapter in the book about shell trumpets. And in that chapter, I focus on the Shabin culture of ancient Peru. But I think since I finished the book, there was also a conch shell trumpet that was found that's 17,000 years old. So they're just ubiquitous. They've always been a part of us, but a really, like a really important, often spiritual part of who we are. 
Yeah, I was really struck by the Chavin chapter because the shells were everywhere. They were so enshrined in this temple in the art. And then there was an intact shell that um, the archaeologist actually blew on, which was like, oh, my God, incredible. Um, <laughs> so, so incredible. And that that was one of my favorite quotes as a journalist that anyone ever said to me. And this was the uh, Stanford archaeologist, Professor John Rick, who had been working in Peru for his whole career when he found this first conch trumpet that was 4,000 years old, buried in the dirt. And he actually just couldn't resist blowing on it. And he took it took him a few times and he described like how he blew on it and finally heard this haunting tone and and the conch bellows for the first time in at least 3,000 years. And so he's describing the sound. This was 20 years after he found the trumpets. And I asked him how it felt like, can you remember that moment when you heard the sound? And he said, it was riveting. It was a gut-wrenching sound, literally gut-wrenching, an actual physical transformation of the human body because of the low frequencies we are not used to. There was this corporal reaction. It was a profound, loud, primary voice. The feeling was, we are hearing sound from the past. We are hearing what they heard. I'm just thinking, we got it. We got it. We've got the voice of the past. Yeah, especially knowing that it had to travel over the Andes to get there. You know, that says something really meaningful, I think, about what role seashells have had in human societies. Me too. And so many times I would find that a shell had been super important in a in a quite inland place like the American desert. Or I remember reading about one in Lake Balatone in Hungary, you know, this enormous sea snail there in a landlocked place. And in fact, sometimes, and this was true during the more modern shell madness as well, the farther away a shell would be transported from its ocean home, the more valuable it was to the people who wanted it. Right. And even in the modern era, we've seen their value shoot up during shell crazes, when the more exotic a shell was, the more prized it became. But there's one guy, one Victorian gentleman you write about, who capitalized on the shell craze and whose descendants have an outsized role in the fossilized shell trade in the form of shell oil. (laughs) The fossil fuel circle here was just even more astonishing than I figured. So shell oil's history actually dates to the early 19th century and a Jewish curio shop owner in the East End of London named Marcus Samuel who imported tropical seashells to meet demand for this shell craze among the growing middle class. And Samuel came up with the idea for those little seashell bejeweled gift boxes that are sold to this day in beach resort towns. And the little, those little shell boxes actually made the family's first fortune. And in the next generation, his sons, that were still working out of Samuel's little seashell shop in the East End, 
beat John D. Rockefeller in Standard Oil's earliest bid for global oil domination by building the first tanker that could travel through the Suez Canal. They brought kerosene to Asia and they named the tanker the Murex for a tropical species of mollusk that builds this ornate spiked shell in honor of their father. And during Shell's early history, all its tankers were named for seashells and that, that tradition still still continues today. I, I should say, I need to add this end to the very poignant end to the story. Since the book was published, some new research has come out of the Mediterranean. I interviewed a scientist a few weeks ago named Paolo Albano at the University of Vienna. And he's found the single most devastating die-off of mollusks along the Mediterranean coast where the first Murex tanker would have been plying along the Suez Canal. It's one of the warm, uh, fastest warming places on Earth, and even the most common populations of native mollusks in the region have collapsed by about three quarters in recent decades, unable to survive sea temperatures that have climbed to a summertime average of near 90 degrees. So uh, that's it was particularly poignant because they could not find a single living murex. And that was once one of the most common marine mollusks in that region. And of course, the name of the first shell oil tanker. There has to be some irony buried here, too. And the fact that we used to use seashells as literal money. And now they're like fodder for the fire. But, I mean, before shell oil and its buds came along, shells were literal currency, and money cowrie were collected for a different kind of global exchange. Can you explain that phenomenon? Yeah, I've been chuckling over the past year as I hear people say cryptocurrency will be the first global currency. Uh, the first global currency was a tiny white seashell called the money cowrie, and actually, uh, Suprea, the scientific name of the shell, shares its root word with cryptocurrency, meaning secret or hidden. But anyway, money cowries, they started being traded in small bits in India as early as the fourth century, and they just expanded around the world, and they were ultimately traded globally for more than a thousand years. They were money longer than any coin or paper money in terms of global circulation. So I ended up following this unlikely route of money calories. They were harvested in the Maldives and they traveled all around the world on ships and they end up really flooding into West Africa, and they actually uh, purchased up to a third of the enslaved Africans who were forced to the Americas. And so that was one of those devastating stories that I just, I just had to follow the cowries and to interview people in the Maldives and in West Africa, people who really knew about these shells and these journeys to try to understand 
that story. And that's, that's part of what I was saying when it, when I said that shells ended up having more to say about humanity than about the environment itself, I, I'm really talking about some of those horrific stories that they tell, including the story of the slave trade. And so I actually ended the book in West Africa, meditating on what had happened there. And, you know, again, talking about the importance of putting human justice at the center of solutions for environmental problems, because it's something that we don't think about enough in environmental writing and different kinds of environmental science. And I think that is really a big lesson of the seashells. Yeah, well, and even of money cowrie itself, because the Maldives and the western coast of Africa, as you wrote, are some of the coasts that are being hardest hit by climate change. There is something metaphoric there. And I, you know, reporting reporting from the Maldives was really interesting because when you read stories from the Maldives, they're often reported from the capital at Malé that is getting built up so that people can move from the outer islands to the main populated city. I went to a really remote island where the cowries were known to have been harvested. It's called Kashadu, and it's a wonderful faraway island. And the people who live there, they don't drive cars. It's an agricultural island. They have this wonderful nature-based culture and people there I interviewed love living there. They have opportunities to go live in Malé and they don't want to live in the city. They want to live on their beautiful island without cars. And, you know, the strange thing that happens when we talk about climate change in the Anthropocene and the idea of we, we humans being all in this together, is not really the right frame because most people in the world are not living the way we live and, you know, driving three cars and using the fossil fuels that we use. It's really, it's really not like that. And then also the place I write about in West Africa where the cowries were unloaded is going to be home to the first major tidal energy plant in Africa. So the book has its dark moments as does life, but it's also you know, I, I, I really tried to write about hopeful stories and, and the solutions that are out there if we would pay attention. Cynthia Barnett's book, The Sound of the Sea, comes out on July 6th, just in time for beach season. This year, when you go, since seashells are being depleted by beachcombing and tourism and climate change, consider leaving them behind and taking only photographs. Instead, collect plastic from the beach to throw out so that the ocean can be a little more hospitable for our mollusk friends. We have links in the show notes to Cynthia's book and really nifty book trailer, as well as the haunting sound of the conch trumpet found in Chavine. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. <laughs>